Welcome to our Rock City Church podcast. We are so excited to have you join us. Our desire is that you would listen with expectancy for what God wants to do in your life. We pray that you would encounter the mighty love of the Father and that you would be fired up for the more that He has for you. Hey, fantastic to be here, Rock City. Don't you like the name? I like anything that kind of has an aggressiveness about it. Always a joy, always a joy. One thing I always love about, uh, if I do cough, it's not COVID, it was, which I got here. I'll never forget that. Praise God, yeah, yeah, yes. Anyhow. One thing, but you know that I always, uh, always, it's always refreshing because there's such a culture of family, and that's what the world wants. I can remember, you know, I studied years ago the trends of the Western world, and I wrote, I read a book about 15 years ago called The Lonely American, written by a husband and wife. Um, uh, they were professors at Yale, and it wasn't a Christian book, but they showed how everything was trending in Western culture towards loneliness. It's only amplified itself since that book was written. At that time, 25% of Americans lived alone. Today, it's 33%. I just got a stat the other day in parts of Dallas, it's up to 51%. Isolation is one of the, the, one of the most incredible uh, things that break down the human mind the human emotions, and the human body. We're not made to be alone. And I can remember thinking back then, I said, the church that understands this, the church that will gravitate and grab hold and not just create a production and a produced service on a Sunday morning, but take serious relationships, I said, that church, God will bless, and the growth of it will be exponential. And that is what Rock City is all about. So thank both of you guys for the incredible leadership at the heart, because it's coming from deep within. And that's why it permeates. It's not a slogan. It's not a one-liner. It's not just a banner. It's coming from the heart. That's why it works. So are you guys ready? I have no iPad tonight. I'm I'm going old-fashioned. They asked me for scriptures. I said, I'm not giving them. You gotta, you gotta find them in your Bible, iPad, iPhone. You're gonna have to look them up yourself. You're gonna have to write. And if you want a title, you can put moving life forward. If you want a scripture, I'm gonna tell you a whole story. And it's found in 2 Kings. We're gonna go there in a moment. But 2 Kings chapter 13. Moving life for life was, is designed by God. The Bible said Jesus came that we might have life, energy, strength, vitality, passion, purpose. Designed by God. Life, I've often said this, life is like a bicycle. You ever seen a bicycle? You ever ridden a bicycle? I want you for a moment to picture yourself on a bicycle. Your own mind, your own imagination. You've all done it, so it's easy to do. Now, you're on the bike. Kickstand is up. Feet are on the pedal. Hands are in the handlebars, but you're not going anywhere. You're just there. Let me say it again. You're sitting on the seat, hands on the handlebars, feet on the pedals. Kickstand's up, but you can't go anywhere. What's going to happen? You're going to fall. You see, that bicycle only has balance and only has poise when it's moving forward. It's built that way. It's a picture of life. Life cannot be sustained through a balancing act. Life itself only has poise and only has balance when it's moving forward. If it ceases to move in a forward direction, you fall off. You can't balance life. Life has to go forward. Life's, I'll give you another quick example. Yeah, yeah, have you ever seen an electric fan? 
Okay, I want you to picture a fan. I want you to hold the blade, plug it in, turn it on, but hold the blade. They're not, they're not you know, they have those little wimpy engines in them, so they're not going to hurt you. But hold the blade, turn it, plug it in, turn it on. What's going to happen? You're going to burn the motor. You're going to burn it because that motor was designed, that blade is designed to burn the power. But when it can no longer burn the power, the power burns it. You were designed to burn something in life. You were designed to move forward in life. And if you and I don't, the power that's in us works in an opposing direction. It burns us instead of us burning it. That's how God made us. So it's always important to understand that before I read this story. This is an incredible story. It's found in, uh, like I said, 2 Kings 13. Starts in verse 14. I'm going to read it, and I'll tell you the characters involved. And then we'll amplify it. Are you ready? Yes. Said Elijah had become sick with an illness in which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him, wept over his face, and said, O my father, my father, the chariots of Israel, the horsemen. Elijah said to him, take the bow and the arrows. So he took to himself the bow and the arrows. He said to the king of Israel, put your hands on the bow. So he put his hands on it. Elijah put his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window or open the east window. He opened it. Elijah said, shoot. He shot. He said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance, the arrow of the deliverance from Syria. You will strike the Syrians of Aphek until you've destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. So he took them. He said to the king of Israel, strike them on the ground. So he struck them three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck them five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria until you had destroyed it. But now you will only uh, uh, strike Syria three times. Fabulous story, because this story is pertinent to every phase of life. Now, I discovered, I've been ministering now my 45th year. I started when I was three months, very young. Been married almost 44 years, so figure that one out. Do the math on that. <laughs> so anyhow, um, I discovered that usually, you know, you get kind of, it takes a, kind of a long time to find out who you are, but you discover in life how God uses you. And one of the ways God's always used me in a message is the message itself tends to be prophetic as I unveil it. In other words, it starts hitting people in very unique areas. So I want, your, I, want, I want you to take this out of the context of just a story that happened thousands of years ago and put it into the context that everything, and I've said this before, everything that happened in the Bible is happening. Every story that happened, it happened historically, but everything you read is happening right now. So this story happened, this story is happening right now in our life. And when you put yourself in the context of a living story that not only happened, if, as, long as, it, it, as long as I think it happened, it'll never affect me. But when I take it out of the fact that it happened, but it's now it's happening, it's a living story. The Bible is alive. These stories were put in there because they work anywhere, any place, any time, and they speak to people at any place, anywhere, any time, and they can direct themselves like a laser beam in the hearts and lives of individuals. Now, you find out that there's three things being talked about right here. First of all, there's Elijah, who's a prophet. Then there's the king, Joash. And then there's a, a military army called the Syrians. The Syrians had surrounded them, and so there was a dilemma going on. So Joash goes to Elijah, I'll get back into that, and he says, what should I do? And so he begins to to lead him in a direction that is most unusual because what he's trying to do is get what's in this man out of this man. And if he can't get what's in him out of him, then they'll never destroy the enemy. So here, so it starts out like this. First of all, you got to understand that problems, and they had a major, everybody's surrounded by something. Everybody will face an enemy that looks invincible, that tries to surround him in life. Everybody will face situations, maybe not now, but at some time, where it looks like you're surrounded by a difficulty. You're surrounded by 
could be tragedy. You could be surrounded by problems. You could be surrounded with something. You know, what, what's a problem to one might not be a problem to another. But whatever's a difficulty to one is a difficulty to that person at that time. Even though somebody else might minimize it, it's still real where that person's concerned. And we always got to understand that. But in this context, you've always understand that problems are never a place of permanence. They're a place of passage. The Bible said in Isaiah, when I walk through the waters, they'll not overtake me. When I walk through the flood, when I walk through the fire, it's not made at a, as a place of permanence. It's made as a place of passage. We go through it. If you know you can get through it, you can get through it. 23rd Psalm, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Didn't say I make a permanent dwelling place. I go through it. If you know you can get through it, you can get through it. It's a big thought. The other thought that I love here, I really do, and I'm going to make from an age down, about 30 down, I'll make you mad. About 30, 35 up, you're going to be real happy. The older you are, the happier you're going to be in a few moments. I'm just warning. The younger you are, you're going to spit. So I'm going to purposely rile you up. You see, Joash was a king. But being a king, he knew that he didn't have all the answers. So he went to a prophet by the name of Elijah. Now, a prophet in the Old Testament was called a seer. One that had the ability to see things. Now, we don't have prophets like the Old Testament today. But we do have people that can see things. Because for the simple fact, they're older than you. <laughs> they lived your years. They went through their struggles. They got the scars to prove it. They've got the wind knocked out of them a half a dozen times. They've been kicked, slapped, fallen down, and they still got up. See, sometimes in the millennial culture and beyond, younger, there's an attitude that if they read it, they know it. You don't know anything. The definition of wisdom is the acknowledgement that you're stupid. You can't learn until you realize you don't know something. The moment you think you know it, learning stops. The moment you think you don't know it, learning begins. Back in the 1970s, in the nation of Papua New Guinea, I got a lot of experience out there because Ginger and I started going there in the 90s. We went every year, built 60 churches. We built, I mean, building teams, finance them, 60 churches in that country. So I know it well. Been all over the nation. Now, I'll give you a background. Papua New Guinea was the last cannibal, the last nation on earth that practiced tribal cannibalism. It was outlawed in 1965. Didn't mean it ended. Just became illegal to eat your neighbor. So in the 70s, 60s and 70s, a disease broke out, and it was killing all the young men in the nation of Papua New Guinea. They didn't know what it was. I mean, there's no reason for a 20-year-old young man just to die, and they were dying. So Australia sent up their health department to try to figure out what it was, and they found out what it was. It's a form of mad cow disease. And in Papua New Guinea, they called it Kuru. You can look it up. Don't do it now. K-U-R-U, Kuru. And it was killing them. But they didn't know where it came from. See, in all ancient cultures, tribal cultures, Bible, Old Testament's a tribal culture. Tribal cultures exist all over the world to this day. In tribal cultures, the way wisdom 
is passed down is from the elders or the papas to the young men. It's done over a gradual, long period of time, usually done in the evening around a fire. The young men would gather, the papas would come, they would sit by the fire, and they would share their stories. That's where the Old Testament, it all came from here. And their stories then would impart wisdom into the younger generation. And as that younger generation grew up, that wisdom began to impart into their life. That's the way wisdom is passed generationally. It's passed from the older to the younger over a long period of time. Well, back in the 70s, a lot of the, these young guys, they begin to think, there's got to be a quicker way. I mean, this takes a long time. We got to wait, you know, however, when we build them them campfires. We got to sit around, listen to these guys talk. This would go on for years. It might take 15 or 20 years before this guy dies. So they got an idea. And when one of them papas would die, now you got to understand in tribal culture, an older man is always an elder. He's always respected and he's always honored. Very different than Western culture. Western culture, we take older people and we stick them in, in a home. In tribal culture, the older people are revered. That's why, they, that's why they have an extended life. They're revered. Their wisdom is revered. Their knowledge is revered. And they're cared for by the younger generation when they reach a certain age for the rest of their life. They never leave the village. And so these young guys thought, <clears throat> got to be a faster way. So when one of the papas would die, what they did is they cut their heads open, took their brains out, and ate them. Because in their mind, they thought, if we can eat the brain, we get the wisdom. It developed a disease. You see, you're not made to consume human flesh. I don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> it caught a disease called Turu. It's also called laughing disease. You die. You go into a stupor. You look like you're laughing, and you die. Now, you say, how does that pertain to us? We're doing the same thing now. You see, we think, we got a generation that thinks if they can shortcut wisdom, if they can just grab it from Google and devour it by reading it, they will shortcut it and they take a generation that's older and they move them aside and think, I don't need you, I'll just grab this and they're gonna kill their own future. Elijah had enough, or Joash had enough sense to know, even though he's a king, I still need the person that can see. There's always, that's why I love this church, there's generations in here. There's generations, the people can see things because they lived it. And when you've lived it, you can see into things. And so never shortcut wisdom. When you're with somebody older, Keep your mouth shut, listen to their stories, absorb what they're saying, and then take their counsel to heart because it'll save your life someday. Are you with me? Yes. First big thought. Second big thought that I love here. It says in verse uh, uh, 15. Where's 15? And, oh, this, oh, this is good. And Elijah said unto him, take the bow and the arrows, take it, take it, take it, take it, take it, take the bow, take it, take it. Listen to me, listen to me, take the bow and the arrows. What good is a bow and a couple arrows against a whole military army? That's not the point. They were surrounded by an enemy. And Elijah says to Joash, take the bow, take the bow. Take the bow. Take the arrows. Take it. Take it. It's not what you have in life that counts. It's what you take. Now, you didn't get that. It's not what you have. I was in my office one day. 
we hired a company that would come in and clean. This guy was vacuuming. And, and he looked, kept looking at me. He said, can I talk to you? I said, sure. He told me a story. He said, I'm a graduate of Stanford University. You know, that's one of the top-tier universities in the world. It's Stanford, Northern California. He said, I'm a graduate of Stanford University. He said, not only am I a graduate, I graduated as the valedictorian of my class. He said, not only was I the valedictorian, I was the tennis star. Not only was I a graduate, a valedictorian, a tennis star, I was voted the most likely to succeed. He said, I've had 14 jobs. I'm pushing a vacuum. He said, I should be doing a whole lot different. See, this guy had it, but he never took it. It's not what you have in life, it's what you take. You don't have to have a lot to change a lot. But whatever you do have, you got to take it. Jesus had, what, two fish and five loaves of bread, and he took it. And he broke it, gave it to his disciples, and he fed 5,000 men plus the women and children. Because it's not what you have, it's what you take. Our friends, I mentioned the nation of Papua New Guinea before, and I love talking about these stories because they're real. When Graham and Irene Baker, who are Australians, went there in 1964, two little girls at that time. He was a builder by trade. She was the youngest, at that time, the youngest RN that ever graduated as an RN in the nation of Australia. She was 19. They got married, had two kids, went to 4A. 4A is the eastern highlands of the nation of Papua New Guinea. It's a very mountainous, rugged country. That's why it's undeveloped, because there's no interior roads. You can get back there and hike back there to this day, and you'll find people that have never seen the outside world. They've never seen the color of your skin. They'll run in stark terror. They don't know what you are. When they first saw somebody parachuting out of an airplane, they thought they were angels coming from heaven. They had no idea what they were. Primitive, primitive people. When they got there, the men wore G-strings. The women wore grass skirts, no tops. You nurse a pig with your own breast if the mother pig uh, can't nurse her babies because pigs are the economy over there. So you see a woman with a baby on this side and a piglet on this side. you never seen that before, have you? No. <laughs> you got nightmares over that one, some of you. <laughs> True story. So they get there. They're Melanesian people, which means black skin. They have no roots to Africa. I have no idea how they got there. I've asked them, they say they don't know. They thought that these white missionaries turned white because they saw soap. They'd never seen soap in their lives, so they stole the soap, rubbed it on their skin to take the blackness off. Didn't work. That's how they thought they got white. They'd never seen a reflection of their face in a mirror. They put pig grease on themselves because they live in the highlands and it gets cold at night. So when you kill a pig, you take the fat from the pig, which is called pig grease, and you rub it on your skin to keep warm. They'd never taken a bath like you take a bath. They'd never taken a shower like you take a shower. They live off the land. They hunt with a bow and arrow. Now that gives you a background. They also had the highest infant mortality rate in the world. It was not uncommon for a woman to have 20 pregnancies and only six living children. Because when she would give birth, the husband would dig a hole. She would go into the hole. He would leave. She'd pull the baby out herself, come out of the hole, light a fire to burn the evil spirits. You never give a baby a name until they were three years old because you never wanted to create an attachment to your child because most of them died. Irene being a nurse, Graham being a builder, he built a clinic. He built a church, he built a house, a church, and a clinic. That clinic to this day is the number one clinic in the nation of Papua New Guinea. We underwrite that clinic financially. It's an amazing thing. It's not a clinic like you think, but it's way up in the highlands. She had a clinic. She had one nurse that she trained at that time by the name of Gigasol. Gigasol in their tribal language means laughter. She's still alive. Her husband passed away last year. And a woman comes walking into that clinic holding her dead son. She showed no emotion because it's so common to have a baby die. So they don't create attachment. But Irene, being an Australian, was devastated. So she took that little boy. She told Gigasol, my wife can tell the story better than I can. She told Gigasol, she said, open up the door. We're going to invite the Holy Spirit in. She held that little boy up by his 
by his ankles, his feet. She began to pray, and they said a wind blew through that valley and blew into that little clinic and hit that baby, and life began to come back. She swatted it on the butt, and it cried. She raised six babies from the dead, and every boy became a pastor. That's how the move of God is. See, it's not what you have. It's what you take. They didn't have money. They didn't have the education that somebody else might have. They didn't have the know-it-all, but they had faith in God. It's never what you have that will change the world. It's what you take that will change. Are you with me? Are you willing to take the little bit you have? Mother Teresa walked into Calcutta, India. I was, I was driving down the road in Calcutta one time, right after she died. I always read stories about her. I thought she was amazing. And I saw Sisters of Charity. I was driving in a taxi. I told the taxi guy, I said, stop. I said, that's where Mother Teresa's from. I ran in there. Had about a few guys. We had a, a, a camera, film. You know, I was going to film. I walked in there, and there's some caskets in there. And so, man, I'm shooting video. And I'm, I'm on the foot of her casket, and I'm talking about this thing until I saw signs everywhere. No video, no video, no video, no video. I say, man, you're too late. The stories told of Mother Teresa when she went to Calcutta. It's a huge city. People dying. They pick them up in garbage trucks. You got the Ganges River that flows through there. And they asked her, this is years ago. Nobody knew who she was. They said, what good can you do? She's from Albania, an Albanian woman. She had a, an epiphany from God when she was 15. She had another epiphany when she was in Ireland at the age of 30. And those two epiphanies, those two visions that she had brought her, her uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, Calcutta. And when she was there, they said, what good can you do? First of all, you're a woman in a Hindu culture, so you have no status. What good can you do? She reached into her pocket. She pulled out three coins. She said, I got three coins, and I've got God. I can do anything. And before she died, there wasn't a president prime minister or king in the world that didn't pay Mother Teresa homage. Amy Simple McPherson, the start of the four-square denomination, walked to an open field in Los Angeles, California. She had a two-by-four, a hammer, and a nail. She pounded the thing in the ground, pounded the nail in the board, and said, I will build a 5,000-seat Angeles temple right here, and she did. It's not what you have, it's what you take that brings the, are you with me? Not what you have in life. It's what you take. You can have everything. You can have this intelligence. I've watched people that have more, more intelligence than brain. Or they're educated beyond their intellect. They don't do anything. They can tell everybody else what to do, but they don't do anything. Not interested though. Then I've watched people Rod and Nellie Hine from Mozambique or from uh, Zimbabwe, fourth generation white Zimbabweans. I met him, we met him years ago. They lived in Inaminga. It's a little town on the border of Zimbabwe and Mozambique. They were farmers. He was a medic in the Rhodesian War. It was a 12-year war. He's a medic in the Rhodesian War. Those wars went for years. And you went into it for six months, you came home and worked your farm. Six months, and you came and did your farm. Six months, and the war finally ended. When the war ended, the communists invaded Mozambique. And Mozambique then allied with Mugabe, who was the wicked ruler of Zimbabwe, when it went from Rhodesia. I'm giving you a history lesson. Rhodesia to, uh, to Zimbabwe. And God spoke to him one night. They're farmers. They're not preachers. They're not pastors. They're farmers. Their parents were farmers. They lived on the border of those two nations. And God speaks to them. Fourth generation, white Zimbabweans, Dutch, German background, tough people. I mean, have you ever met the German and Dutch that built most, a lot of South Africa? They are rugged, rugged people. They make an American look so weak every time I get around them because they're rugged. And God speaks to them one night and says, take my gospel to the rebel soldiers of the, of the communist nation of Mozambique because the rebel soldiers are fighting the communists. Now, what if God told you that? You see, 
that was a death sentence because it's treason in their own nation. If they ever came back to their own nation, they would be publicly hanged. God will have you do things that look impossible because it's not what you have in life, it's what you're willing to take. They had three children, two daughters and one son. They took an old Bible. They hiked over the mountain from Mutari into, into Mozambique and for 12 years, they averaged 20 miles a day on dirt roads preaching to the rebel soldiers. It was their first Bible school until a friend of mine brought them a single-engine Cessna airplane. Rod Hine knew how to fly it. He flew 800 rebel missions, had 50-caliber machine gun bullet through his wings. God would speak to him, pull up, pull up, pull up. Communists would pull out, 50-caliber, boom, 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 through his wings. 800, he went by the code name of Joseph until they brokered the peace deal. It's a matter of history with five world leaders in Rome, ousted the 16-year reign of communism, brought in a new regime. The new regime came in and gave 157 acres of land to build a Bible school. Did they have two of them? And planted 200 churches in that nation. It's not what you have. It's what you take. Are you with me? Don't look at your life and try to calculate the value of what you have. Just take it. Just take it. Say, God, this is all I got, but I'm giving it all I've got. I found out a long time ago, I don't play instruments. I don't do any of that stuff pastors do. I only found out I got three gifts. I can yell, hit, and tell a story. That's it. So I just took them all. Say, God, I'm going for broke. I'm going to hit people, yell, and I'm going to tell stories and see how far it takes me, taking me to 71 nations so far. It's not what you have. We were building our second, our first church building. First one we built. We built it, 500-seat auditorium, made it an 800-seat auditorium. So you had an auditorium, 800 seats, a foyer, a sanctuary, offices, classrooms, <coughs> totally out of room. Wrong piece of property. I won't go into the whole story, but I was, I, I was in the wrong location. I figured it out because I took a map and I put dots of where everybody lived that was coming to church and I said, I'm in the wrong location. And I figured that out because I read Proverbs. And Proverbs said, man prospers wonderfully through wise counsel, common sense, and keeping abreast of the facts. So I wasn't keeping abreast of the facts. So I said, I'm in the wrong location. So now yeah, I wouldn't have, now listen, it's not what you have. It's what you take. I didn't have a lot of money. So I called up 12 realtors, 12 of them. Told them all the same story. I had 200,000 bucks. I said, I got 200,000 bucks. I need property. I told them where? None of them, only one guy answered me. Only one guy. His name was R.J. Schaefer. Jewish guy, Jewish guy. Came down in a big... Uh, Mercedes picked me up. They called him Mr. Westside. Took me on Old Central Avenue, US 66. You ever hear US 66? Most famous highway in America. He said, I got that land, that land. Took me on his land. He said, no, I don't want it. Drove back. And he said, well, I got land over there, but, it's, but, but you don't want that. And something jumped up. I said, no, I want that land. He says, not enough. I said, who owns the land next to it? He said, a Cuban. I said, I want his land, the Cuban's land. He said, you know anything about Cubans? I said, no. He said, their land means more to them than their wife. He said, I'm a Jew. I've been trying for two years to get that guy's land. If a Jew can't do it, no way a Christian could do it. So he told me. I said, we're going to pray. Called me up two weeks later and said, my God, it's a miracle. He said, you did in two weeks what a Jew couldn't do in two years. He's going to sell you that land at half price. I said, why? He said, his wife left him. He needs money. <laughs> so we put the two pieces of land together. And then I created, see, it's not what you have. It's what you take. Sometimes solutions create dilemmas. One problem solved, another problem created. What's the other problem created? I don't have any more money. All the money's sitting there tying up that property. 
I'm six miles away. I'm overbuilt. For, I can't sell what I've got. I'm overbuilt. So somebody came up to me and said, why don't you move the church? I said, what? Like pick it up? Oh, yeah, yeah, pick I said, you can't do that. Well, call this guy. His name was Ted. Ted Waterman. Little short, stocky, muscular guy. Called him up, came over. Had a calculator. Them old, you know, those little calculators? Walked around the perimeter doing all these numbers. I followed him. I said, you think you can pick this building up? He said, yeah. I said, like, the whole thing? Yeah. I said, really? Yeah. I said, how much? Gave me a good price. How long will it take? He said, about seven months. Man, I got excited. I went home, told Ginger. I said, we're going to pick up the whole church. She said, well, what are we going to do in the meantime? I mean, you don't have a building. I said, I don't know. I haven't figured that one out yet. I said, I'll just get a tent. She said, it's winter. It's going to be winter. What are you going to do? I said, we'll put hair dryers in the thing. I don't know what we're going to do. We'll put something in that thing. How about toilets? I said, commercial, chemical. She said, we're going to lose everybody. So what I didn't realize is the land we bought, behind it, there was a warehouse, 40,000 square foot warehouse sitting there. It was empty. So I went to the owner. I said, uh, can I rent this thing? Yeah, you can rent it. How much? He said, 4,000 a month and I'll pay all utilities. Got the whole thing. Took him seven months to prep our church. Took a day and three quarters to go six miles once they moved it. Biggest building ever moved in the history of the state of New Mexico. It'll never happen again because the state signed off without reading the right of way. And they became liable to move every line, every stoplight, every power line, everything. They were liable. They were on the hook. They never read how big it was. And they changed the laws afterwards. They said it'll never happen again. <laughs> they were taking down stoplights, moving poles, everything. I could have saw, I mean, people were lining up on the streets with lawn chairs watching it. It only went one mile an hour. I could have sold popcorn and hot dogs at that time. We took still shots of it. We made a commercial. The news media picked it up. The church that loved their building so much, they took it with them. It's amazing. You can see this thing. You see the church going down the road. People were flat, but it's not what you have. It's what you take. We got more mileage out of that thing than I could ever put together. The next thought, I got to hurry up. The next thought. The next thought, where are we? Oh, seven, verse 17. And he said, open up the east window. He opened it. Eliza said, shoot. And he shot. Said the arrow of the Lord's deliverance. The arrow of the deliverance from Syria. So on and so forth. <coughs> open up the window eastward. There's always an open window. I don't care what it looks like. There's always an open window. And I love the fact that it was eastward sunrise. There's always a sunrise with God. God never ends on a sunset. God does everything on a sunrise because it speaks of resurrection. There's always. I don't care what it looks like, how bad it looks. Don't look up. Don't look down, always look up. There's always an open window. There's always something out there. If we look over here, we're gonna miss it, but God always provides something. But you gotta go through it. You gotta go through it. There's always an open window. The first building we built, that was the first building we built, but the first time we built that building, it was under construction. And the contractor called me up. His name was Ken. Ken Dubay, still remember his name. Called me up on a Monday. He said, I got bad news. I said, what is it? He said, somebody stole your roof last night. That's low. I mean, you ever heard of somebody stealing? I mean, all the material for the roof was delivered on site. Somebody evidently went down there and with a flatbed and a cherry picker and took the whole thing. He said, I got more bad news. I said, what is it? He said, insurance won't cover it. Nothing about stolen roof. He said, I got more bad news. I said, what is it? 
He said, six-week delay. He said, because it has to be manufactured. Now, I'd love to tell you that I went into prayer. I didn't get into prayer. I got in my truck. I went looking for my roof. So I'm sending somebody right now to heaven. I'm going to find that roof. Man, I drove for hours. I'm looking in fields. I'm looking in backyards. I'm going through all the bad parts of the neighborhood. I'm looking to see where I can. I couldn't find it. In the meantime, at that time, I got somebody working for me. His name was Herman. Herman had one eye. He had a good eye and a glass eye. People used to always come up to me and say, man, that guy's unfriendly. And I said, depends on which side you walked on. <laughs> Since you walk on this side, he can't see you. Got that glass eye. I didn't know he had to. He, he didn't have an eye. Only one wine-eyed Herman, we called him. So old Herman, you know, Herman, he's a good guy. Herman called up the local newspaper and pitched a story to him. I didn't know this was going on. Next day, headlines in the Albuquerque Journal. Church goes topless. <laughs> oh, yeah, we had a revival of men. Paul Harvey pig. Remember, some of you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, anybody remember Paul Harvey? Yeah. He was the biggest radio guy that America ever had at that time because we hit the Associated Press. We were in every newspaper from California to New York, from Canada to the Gulf. And Paul Harvey did twice, and now you know the rest of the story. And so I started getting checks in the mail from People, churches, get a new roof. I get another check, a new roof. You know, all these checks coming in from all over America. And then the contractor called me up and said, I got good news. I said, what is it? He said, insurance is going to cover it. I got more good news. I said, what is it? Two-week delay instead of a six-week. You know what I did? We were in a little tiny church at that time. I walked in there all by myself. I love to tell you that I just started, you know, singing hallelujah and all that. No, I didn't. I got on my knees, threw both hands up to heaven, prayed the most spiritual prayer that I knew at that moment. I said, God, let somebody steal another roof. <laughs> I got more mileage out of this one than I ever can. I got insurance paying for it. I got money in the bank and I got publicity all over America. This is absolutely fantastic. God always has an open window. Are you with me? We can get discouraged at times. We can look in all the wrong places, but if we'll look up, there's an open window somewhere. It's always eastward. It's always a sunrise. There's always a tomorrow. Song of Solomon said the time of the singing of the birds will return. I love the scripture because birds only sing when the storm's gone and the time will come again. No matter what you're going through, the birds are going to sing for you again. That, oh, that window's opening up and it's eastward. There's another sunrise coming. There's a new day coming no matter what it looks like. I was years ago. I'll tell one more story real quick. It's only take two minutes. Now listen, you know, you, you probably, listen, I've never, I, I, I've gone through struggles like everybody. 1996, years ago now, been a long time, I was diagnosed with clinical depression. Church was growing, fabulous things were happening, but at the same time, we were taught, the way we pastored, we were taught, you can never be close to people. You can pastor them, but pastor them from a distance. That was so ingrained in the American church culture in the 1980s and the 1990s. And it always reminds me of a story that I saw in the movie. I thought the movie was from The Godfather until I said that one time. And a guy came up to me and said, I'm going to tell you something right now. I've watched every Godfather there is. He said, that is not in that movie. So I've never figured out what movie it's in, but I love the scene. This older Italian guy walks in the water with this young punk and he reaches down through the water and pulls out a stone. He says, see this? He said, you're like this stone. You're surrounded, with, well, you're surrounded by water, but you've never been penetrated 
by the water that surrounds you. That was me. Relationships will penetrate you. Relationships will equal you. They're like a hammock. They'll hold you above the hard ground of depression. They balance you. They can reflect you. They can help you. You get close to people, people will look at you and say, man, there's something going on. We need to talk. And it helps. We didn't have that. So I find myself in a downward spiral. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. Clinical depression is not a bad day. It's not a blue Monday. It's not gonna, you can't snap out of it. I ended up in the hospital. I was sitting on a bed. A young intern walked in. Don't know who he was. He just walked in and looked at my chart, looked at me and said, you got clinical depression. You're gonna have changed the way you live and walked out. He had more wisdom than any of them. So it took, so I went on a journey. Didn't, didn't leave overnight, took months and months. But I remember one day I got a phone call from a friend of mine. He was doing crusades all over the world. He said, I want you to come to Mozambique in Tenerivo, the capital of Mozambique. I'm not, excuse me, not Mozambique, Madagascar. Fifth biggest island in the world, off the coast of Africa. Antenna Revo, Madagascar. We're going to do a massive crusade. I want you to do a pastor's conference. It was hope. It was that window. Inside of me, somebody said, no, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. But there was something else said, I got to go. I got to go. But it was the window of hope. Hope punches holes in darkness. It's the anchor of the soul. It's a place of refuge. It pulls you like a magnet. It opens up a new day. I grabbed that hope. It was in September. The phone call was in the summer. I went. I never forgot it because up until then, the devil whispered in my ear, your days are over. Your days are over. I stood on that platform. On that Sunday, we had 190,000 people in a huge open field, concrete bleachers in an oval shape, 12-acre field packed with the, Madagas- with the Malagasy people. They were little straw hats. Had photo- I have photos of this thing. It's huge. I gave the altar call. We estimated 100,000 people came to Jesus Christ. I wept. I wept. I was so broken. I cried, and I said, devil, look at it. Look at it. I wanted to rub his face in it. You said it would never happen again. Look at it. Look at it. There's always an open window. There's always a tomorrow. There's always a sunrise. One last thought, which is so powerful how this thing ends. So then Elijah looks at Joash. He said, take the arrows, hit them on the ground. That's all he told them. God will have you do things because he wants to see what's in you. He hit him three times and stopped. Nobody told him to hit him three times and stop. But he hit him three times and stopped. And Elijah was mad. He said, what? How? What'd you stop? He said, you'll never defeat the enemy. You'll never defeat him. You'll wound him. You'll injure him. But you'll never defeat him. See, there's a tendency in all of us to get excited for the moment, to strike the arrows, and then Stop to hit a few times. Man, we're excited. We're going for it. Bam, bam, bam. And we pull back. We get excited over a vision. We get excited over a dream. We get excited over something, an area of service or ministry. We strike the arrow three times and we stop. It's time to strike the arrows again. It's time to strike the dream, to strike the arrows of your marriage the arrows of your life, the arrows of prayer, the arrows of intercession, the arrows of your future. It's time to strike the arrows again. Don't stop. It's time to pick them up and say, God's not finished. This is not over. Hope I don't break this thing. It's time to strike the arrow of your future, the arrow of your life, the arrow of determination, the arrow of faith, the arrow of your home, the arrow of ministry, the arrow of vision, the arrow of service. It's time to stand up again and say enough is enough. I've done this. I've stopped. I'm going back. I'm picking it up and I'm striking the arrow again. Stand up with me. It's time to strike 
the arrow again. I want our ministry team to come up. It's time to strike the arrows again. Come on up here. Any, all the ministry, just come on up here because we're gonna, well, it's time to strike it. There's people in here that need to strike the arrow. You need to strike it. You need to strike it. You need to strike it. I want the ministry team to come line up right here. And then I'm gonna say this. I'm gonna count to three. And those of you in the auditorium that say, I need, God, I need this. I gotta strike the arrow. I've hit them. I've been excited. I pulled back. But when I count to three, I want you to jump out of your seats. I want you to run down here. We're going to start praying for you. Time to strike it. Time to get the fight back. Time to get something. Pull that thing out again. Whatever you need to strike the arrows for, it's time to strike them. Are you ready? I said, are you ready? Are you ready? One, get ready to come. I don't want you, I don't want you just lazily coming down here. I want an aggressiveness tonight. Two, get ready, get ready, get ready, get ready. Lay the pride down, lay everything down. I open my heart to you, open your heart to God right now. Get ready to strike the arrows. Here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Get ready, get ready. Three, come on down here right now. Come on down, come on, come on, come on. Strike them arrows, strike it, strike it. Strike it, strike it, strike it, strike it. Come up here with a, with a, with a, with a strength, a boldness. Keep coming, 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 keep coming. Strike the arrows, strike the arrows, strike the arrows. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this message, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And if you want to partner with us in what God is doing here at Rock City, you can give by visiting our website at rockcitycorpus.com give.